The fact that he had been watched for four years means that the assassination was a catastrophic counterintelligence failure. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio is Keith Johnson, FP's Deputy Editor for News. And joining us on Skype from Miami is Jefferson Morley, a journalist and editor who has worked in Washington for more than 30 years. Jeff has written about intelligence and politics for Salon, The Atlantic, The Intercept, and recently published his third book, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton, the story of the former CIA spymaster who obstructed the JFK assassination of investigation. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So we've seen over the past few weeks the release of thousands of pages of new material on the investigation to the assassination of JFK, sending reporters, academics, and even amateur historians scrambling to comb through the records looking for new details. While the release of the records is itself a new story, it's difficult, I think, for most of us to parse what is really news here. Is Trump creating a smokescreen, as some have suggested, for his latest blunders? Do the documents really reveal anything new? To walk us through the thousands of pages of documents is Jeff, who has spent the last several years working on his new book about Angleton. So, Jeff, let's start with the release itself before moving into your book and some of the specific topics. And President Donald Trump has touted the release of these records a lot. How much really credit does he get? How much of these were planned for release originally? How significant is it in your view? He doesn't deserve any credit. This is, the, this is due to a law that was passed 25 years ago the JFK Records Act, which was passed after Oliver Stone's movie and the great controversy that surrounded it. And Congress stepped in and said, we're going to make public all U.S. government records on the assassination. They created an independent civilian review board, which began to locate, review, and release records. And the vast majority of JFK records were released in the late 1990s. But federal agencies, such as the CIA and the FBI, were given the right under the law to postpone release of their assassination-related records for up to 25 years from the date of enactment. So the law was signed into by President, the first President Bush on October 26, 1992. So fast forward 25 years, and the deadline for JFK disclosure arrived last month. President Trump tweeted that he was going to make everything public, and then at the last minute caved into demands from the CIA and other agencies that um, they couldn't possibly release all this, this material. And so he gave them another 180 days and they've started to release a little bit more. So the first thing is, you know, they blew the deadline. Trump talked a good game about making this stuff public, but they blew the deadline. They didn't make it all public. Probably less than half of the material that is supposed to become public has been made public. So that's that's really the first story here is that this stuff was supposed to be all of this material was supposed to be made public on the 20 on the 26th of October. Uh, that deadline wasn't met. At that point, only about 10 percent of the records had been made public. And now in, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a series of rolling releases. Um, but we're still we still probably haven't seen even 50 percent of the material. And, you know, there's a little bit of a shell game going on because some material has been released, but then it contains many redactions itself. So um, the the CIA and other the CIA is the worst offender in this. The other agencies too um, are continuing to you know withhold this material that was 
very clearly the intent of Congress was to make it all public by now. So I was speaking to one historian um, familiar with sort of the the breadth of material and was just beginning to go through the documents, but it was still unclear of the documents, the new documents that have been released. What is significant? What's really new from what you've reviewed? Are we learning significant new aspects of the investigation? Um, Not yet. Um, You know, uh, of course, you have to understand the CIA is going to release the least significant and, and, and least sensitive material first, and they're going to say it's the most sensitive material and either not release it at all or only release it under the orders of the president. So, you know, what we are seeing is a lot of this stuff is not relevant to the assassination, is kind of leftovers. Some of it has been released before and is just was inadvertently categorized as unreleased. But we are learning we are learning some significant new things about CIA sources and methods, basically. In Mexico City, where Oswald visited before the assassination, in some of the memoranda, high-level memoranda that were exchanged immediately after the assassination. But it is a challenge to sift out the new material from the old. And reporters who are coming to this story, you know, new, find something that they regard as, you know, newsworthy and, and, and highly interesting. And in fact, it might have been made public 20 years ago. Exactly. So there's a problem of kind of collective memory here, and, and the story needs to be recapitulated. It's interesting what people find, you know, startling or newsworthy today that has been forgotten. You know, for example, there's a memo from J. Edgar Hoover saying, you know, two days after the assassination, we need to put out something to convince the public that Oswald is the real assassin. So J. Edgar Hoover has reached the conclusion that one man alone was responsible for this before the investigation even began. But that memo had been made public 20 years ago, so we did know that part of the story, even though that did get a lot of you know, newsworthy attention uh, this time around. So let's turn to what is perhaps one of the more fascinating figures in these files, which is also, of course, the subject of your book, um, James Ingleton. Can you start off telling us who is he, why is he important, and then what, if anything, the new documents tell us or what they add to your own extensive reporting and research that you did for this book? So James Ingleton was one of the leading figures in the CIA in its first 25 years, from 1947 to 1974. And he was the chief of counterintelligence for the CIA for most of that time. So intelligence is the job of stealing the enemy's secrets, and counterintelligence is the job of preventing the enemy from stealing your secrets. So it's a very important position, and Angleton elevated it into a position of real you know, power within the CIA. In my book, in The Ghost, I tell a story that hasn't been told before, which is how Angleton, as chief of counterintelligence, began to closely monitor this young ex-Marine, Lee Harvey Oswald, when he defected to the Soviet Union in November 1959. And as I show in the book, he maintained close, paid close attention to him for the next four years. And all information about Oswald from anywhere in the U.S. government, from the State Department, from the FBI, from the Marine Corps, which he had belonged to, all of that went into one file, which was controlled by one office under Angleton's control. So, this, you know, the story that 
that we were given after the assassination that this guy Oswald came out of nowhere and shot the president and we really, we really didn't know anything about him is simply untrue. And it was a cover story to hide the fact that they had been watching Oswald very carefully over that time. And when I say very carefully, Oswald defected to the Soviet Union. He returned to the United States a couple of years later. He had married a Russian woman. He took a job in, in Fort Worth, Texas. He moved to New Orleans. He went to Mexico City and made a very curious visit to Mexico City six weeks before the assassination, and then returned to Dallas. At every step of the way, Angleton's staff was immediately informed of what he was doing and where he was going. So, in fact, Angleton was notified in an FBI report that Oswald was in Dallas on November 15, 1963, seven days before the assassination. So this isn't a theory about the assassination. This is actually what happened, and we don't have a very good explanation of it. So there is Angleton material that has still been withheld. Probably the most significant thing is some closed-door testimony that he gave to Senate investigators in 1975 after he was forced to retire. And, you know, it's a 150-page transcript. It's a, it's, it's a significant document where he was asked to explain himself, not just about the assassination, but about all of the activities he had undertaken as the counterintelligence chief. So that's a kind of glimpse of what the, what the CIA is still hanging on to, what they, were, that they are obliged to release, and what they really evidently don't want to release or are not ready to release. I wanted to I wanted to follow up on this because it's a fascinating little nugget. This this notion that you have this this file. I guess well, first it was one type of file, then later on a a regular file for Lee Harvey Oswald. Angleton is keeping tabs on him during this entire period. But is there any indication exactly why he was he was so careful to to monitor Oswald's movements and and to keep updated with every snippet that was coming in through the government? I mean, was he just concerned about KGB, you know, spies or moles inside the agency? Or what exactly do you think the motivation could have been? Well, you know, when you watch somebody that close, when the CIA watches somebody that closely, they're not just doing it for their own, you know, edification. It's not like Oswald was under investigation. They wanted they wanted to use him for something or to see if he could be used for something. So, like you said, one thing they wanted to use him for was maybe he could lead them to a mole within the CIA, a KGB spy who was actually working in the CIA. And Angleton was quite certain that there was such a person. What it looks like is that he used Oswald's file as kind of a bait for the mole. If there was a spy within the, the CIA, he would naturally be interested in an American who went to the Soviet Union. Was he a CIA agent? What was the nature of the CIA's interest in him? And that, that presumed mole would have asked for his file, asked to see more information about him. So. Angleton controlled the Oswald file very tightly as part of the mole hunt. That's one thing he did. In 1963, it also seems clear that he used Oswald to try and figure out what was going on with Cuban intelligence in Mexico City. Oswald went to Mexico City six weeks before Kennedy was killed, and he visited the Cuban consulate. Well, I had show in my book that office, that one office in Mexico City was of interest to Angleton. He understood that it was a locus for Cuban intelligence activity. All of the people who worked in that office were presumed 
to be human intelligence officers, and Oswald had contact with him. He was seeking a visa to go to Cuba. So they, I think they were observing him there to figure out how could Americans get into Cuba, or how did Cuba help American sympathizers come and go. That's clear from the record. That's what they were doing. The question is, were they using him for something else? And there's circumstantial evidence that they were, because Oswald was, had gone public as a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a popular leftist group that had been created in the United States to support Castro and his revolution. And the Fair Play for Cuba Committee had been targeted by the CIA and FBI for harassment, disruption, and destruction. And so at the moment that this known FPCC supporter shows up in Mexico City, you know, the question is, were they using him to advance an operation against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee? Also, in the realm of possibility, was somebody using him in an assassination conspiracy? We don't have proof of that, but the circumstantial evidence is there. And if you look at the extraordinary secrecy that still surrounds this, the fact that the deadline's been blown, you know, you have to wonder, you can't rule out the possibility because it would be willfully naive to rule out the possibility that they were manipulating and using Oswald for some unknown intelligence purpose. And, you know, that's, that, that's really at the heart of, of this issue. Why are we so interested 54 years later? It's because we really don't have a very good explanation of the assassination, and people are hungry for something that makes more sense. Well, if the CIA was running Oswald as an agent, and that's what they're hiding, that would make sense. That would be an incredibly damaging thing for the CIA to acknowledge now. I mean, they're clearly hiding something. They're clearly hiding a lot. You know, we, we're probably still looking at, you know, eighteen to 20,000 documents that, ha- that were supposed to be public by now, under law, that are still secret. So, you know, when people say, oh, you know, Washington can't keep a secret, I mean, we are having a vivid demonstration. They're keeping 18,000 secrets now. Now, you can come and say, well, that's a lot of trivia and it doesn't have anything to do with JFK. And you know what? That's true. But they could have very damaging secrets in that pile of secrets. And that's what we're, you know, that's the possibility that we're interested in. That's an interesting question. But the thing is, you know, just like for a new generation of journalists where we read things and everything to us looks new because we're so unfamiliar with the material and the reporting that went on um, over the past few decades, I have to wonder, I'm sure at the CIA there is a bureaucratic inertia, a desire not to release anything. But do you think there are still people at the agency who are so concerned that the release of information could damage their information? It's not simply history for them? I think there are. I think there are. Um, I mean, you know, if they had released everything on October 26th and said, we need to keep these hundred documents secret, I would be more inclined to say what you're saying. But they, get, they came to Trump with a maximalist demand. If, if the agency was ready to comply with the law and get in compliance with the law, they could have, and they didn't do that. And so, you know, the whole history of the Kennedy assassination story is filled with CIA misconduct. You know, they didn't tell the Warren Commission that they were trying to assassinate Castro in 1963. They didn't tell the Warren Commission about this extensive pre-assassination surveillance of Oswald. 
they're not entitled to the benefit of the doubt given their past record. You have to be suspicious of it. Now, the factors that you talk about, they're a secretive agency. That's what they do. They keep a secret and they and they keep ridiculous things secret. That's one of the things we see in the in the releases is, you know, what have they been hiding for 54 years? They've been hiding the fact that they have a CIA station in, you know, Mexico City. Well, you know, everybody knew that, but they, you know, they want to keep that information blacked out because they want to keep secrets. So that's a factor in what's going on here. But the fact that they're trying to hide so much, I think, is suspicious. Let's turn to another name that seems to be showing up a lot in the documents, Yuri Nosenko. Who was he? How does he figure in? And again, are there new things in the documents about him? And I know you talk about Nosenko in your book as well. So Yuri Nosenko was a KGB officer who started selling secrets to the CIA in 1962. And then in 1964, after the assassination, came to the United States with a story the KGB was not interested in Oswald when he was in the Soviet Union. This this story was greeted with a great deal of skepticism by Angleton and other people, and it probably was not true. Instead of accepting him as a defector, which was the agreement they had with him, Angleton threw him in jail in basically what we would now call a black site. There was no legal justification or no criminal charges. There was no due process. Nasenko was imprisoned in the CIA facility in Maryland and held for the next four and a half, five years. I'm questioned um, in, in a hostile way about was he a, a fake defector? Had he, had he been sent with false information, possibly to hide, this was Angleton's theory, to hide a KGB role in the assassination? The detention of Nisenko created a, a, a great deal of controversy within the CIA at the time. This was completely invisible to the public. There was a group of officers who said, Nisenko is a bona fide defector, and we should let him go. And there was another faction that said, no, he's a phony defector, and we need to break him. So this dispute went on for five years um, before finally they reached an institutional consensus, uh, which went against Angleton, and Nisenko was released. Nisenko was resettled in the United States. Mm-hmm. The CIA watched him for the rest of his life and never found any evidence that he was a phony defector. And so the CIA concluded that he was a bona fide defector. But his defection set off this debate about, was there a KGB plot to kill the president? I think that there's no evidence to support that. And the fact that they never found any evidence and they eventually exonerated Nisenko is proof that, you know, there wasn't anything to that theory of the assassination. You expressed some doubt, or maybe I misunderstood, on Nosenko's contention that the KGB wasn't interested in Lee Harvey Oswald, that they thought he was a nut. And, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was a bit of a nut. So are you doubting Nosenko's contention? or what? I mean, we later learned in the 1990s, after the Soviet Union dissolved, that there was a, an interest in Oswald. Now, Nosenko might have been telling the truth as far as the KGB went, but clearly the Soviet Domestic Security Service, which would be their equivalent of the FBI, right? The KGB is their equivalent of the CIA, but their domestic law enforcement, called the MVD, did take an interest in Oswald. So it's a, it's a complicated story, but the bottom line is the CIA 
felt that Nasenko concluded that Nasenko was a bona fide defector. And what we see in these recent releases is a lot of the interrogation of Nasenko. But I should say, even these records, they've been partially released, but a lot of them are, are also still heavily redacted. So the CIA has let a little bit out of the story, but not all of it. Well, let's turn back to Angleton for a second. I mean, you, you portray him. I mean, he was able to do what he did, amass so much power and sort of operate independently, in part because he had this sort of intellectual depth. Yet it seems like on every major issue, he came out on the wrong side of history, whether it was Lee Harvey Oswald or trying to assassinate Fidel Castro or MK Ultra, these very famous LSD mind control experiments. Is there anything that Angleton did that was good, in your view? Um, you know, I think he was an effective counterintelligence officer through the early 1960s. He helped break up Soviet intelligence networks in the United States. He elevated the importance of counterintelligence, which, which intellectually was a, a very sound, you know, proposition. But he overdid it. And because he was not accountable, you know, he never got called on his mistakes. I mean, think about that. He, he followed the man around who supposedly killed the president. I, I tend to doubt that, but whether whoever killed the president, and let's just say it was Oswald alone, the fact that he had been watched for four years means that the assassination was a catastrophic counterintelligence failure that was his personal responsibility. If that had been known, what we know now, what I tell in my book, that Oswald had been monitored and surveilled for four years, Angleton would have lost his job in 1963, and other people would have lost their job at the CIA as well. You know, and, and, and instead, he stayed in power for 10 more years. And so the poor judgment that he showed in that case was never corrected. He was never held accountable. And so, yeah, his mistakes, you know, began to multiply. And by the end, CIA Director William Colby had, was totally exasperated with him and, and finally contrived a way to get rid of him because his mistakes had, had accumulated. Well, let's go back to the question you raised midway through that of, you know, whether Lee Harvey Oswald was indeed responsible, whether he acted that alone. I mean, let me ask you, is that, you know, I always look at that. I, if in my generation, if that is something that people agonize a lot about. Keith, you saw the Oliver Stone movie. Is that still part of the cultural zeitgeist? No, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, for, for a lot of people, the touchstone from the 90s, at least, would be the... Um, you know, the, the single loogie theory that the, the Seinfeld had developed as well. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what happened was this was a, a question of intense interest in the 60s and 70s. And then because it went, it went unresolved, because the mainstream media organizations didn't investigate, didn't care to investigate, the whole thing became kind of a joke. And, and so now it's kind of a joke, you know. Who killed the president of the United States? Who cares? It's funny. You know, there's stupid conspiracy theories. Let's, and so the whole thing has kind of been trivialized. But what's interesting is it doesn't go away. And, you know, the interest that's around now is people are still hungry for a better explanation, you know. And it's fine. You can joke about it. And you know what? There's a lot of stupid conspiracy theories out there. But, you know, the troubling fact remains that if you look at some of the smartest people around President Kennedy, like his successor, Lyndon Johnson, or his widow, Jackie Kennedy, or his brother, Bobby Kennedy, or his main enemy, Fidel Castro, or one of his greatest admirers, Charles de Gaulle, 
every one of them did not believe the official story. Every one of those people who I just named believed that Kennedy was killed by his enemies. And so it's a very serious question because it's a, it's a pivotal point in American history. And Seinfeld can make a lot of jokes about it, and people can laugh, and mainstream reporters can try and get rid of it. But it doesn't go away in the popular imagination. You know, I just went to see the LBJ movie, and the assassination is the core of the movie. It's the core of a Hollywood production 54 years later. So it doesn't go away. And because the government hasn't given us a good explanation, it doesn't go away. Do you think there's a good explanation or at least a, a further answer to some of the questions that we still have? You mentioned that I think it was about a 120-page transcript of Angleton in terms of the, the 1975 closed-door testimony. There's also a very tantalizing snippet, I believe, from, from uh, Richard Helms um, when he was asked uh, about his assessment of the, of the assassination, and then that's where the document ends before he answers. Uh, do, do you think in some of these last remaining pages that, that the CIA has been holding on to will find an answer to this? You know, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about the idea of a smoking gun, but I think that what, what we have here is we can have pieces of the, of the puzzle, and, and we can have a lot more pieces of the puzzle, and this thing will start to make more sense. And I think if we understand the CIA monitoring surveillance and possibly manipulation of Oswald, the event of November 22nd will come into more focus. So it's very painstaking. You know, and, and the, the, the example you cite, the, the Helms memo, is interesting because, in fact, we do have the rest of that, of that document. Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, was asked in 1975, was Oswald a CIA agent? And, and that question had been covered up for 40-plus years. But what's interesting about that question is it was posed by a man named David Bellin, who was the executive director of the Warren Commission. So from 1963 to 1975, David Bellin was out there every day saying, it's clear-cut, it's obvious, this guy Oswald killed the president for no reason. You know, it, it's very sad, but that's the official explanation. Well, a series of revelations in 1975 forced the government to reopen the investigation. And when they reopened the investigation, they put Bellin in charge of it again, and they went to interview Dick Helms. And the very first thing that Bellin said when he got in the room with the director of the CIA was, was Oswald a CIA agent? That's how little confidence there was among the people who were promoting the lone gunman theory, that as soon as they could talk to the CIA director in private, they said, was that guy a CIA agent? The suspicions under the surface of the official story of a lone gunman a little man killed a big man for no reason, get over it. Underneath that very calm and reassuring story, even the people who believed that publicly did not believe it privately and had and asked that kind of question as soon as they could get the CIA director in there. Helms, of course, denied it and said, no, he wasn't. You know, But that story is telling because there was not a lot of confidence in the lone gunman theory at the highest level of the government. But turning back to, for instance, what you talked about in terms of Angleton, you know, covering up the fact, not disclosing that they were watching Oswald, you know, 
Couldn't both theories be true? Um, you know, Senka's idea that, you know, the KGB thought that Oswald was a nutcase. Angleton was massively incompetent, as was the CIA, because they were following this guy for so long and yet couldn't anticipate, predict, or even just stop what happened. And that Oswald was the lone gunman who was, you know, able to do it because the CIA was incompetent. I mean, you seem to doubt that. I mean, you quite clearly doubt that. I, I do doubt that for for a variety of reasons. But that, that's a perfectly plausible scenario. And that's exactly what the law was intended to get us past. Because if we had all the records in front of us, that might be the case. And we would know it. And we would say, we have all the records. And here's the best explanation based on them. But when you have those kind of questions hanging out there, and the CIA is blowing through the, you know, through the de- the, the, the legal deadline, you know, I just think it would be willfully naive to say that they couldn't possibly be hiding a covert operation involving Oswald. They could be hiding it, and the fact that we don't have all the records is proof that they have the ability to keep things like that secret. So I'm not saying, you know, that my my doubts are historically true. I'm saying these are legitimate questions, and only full disclosure can resolve them. Yes, and of course, the CIA has a long history of withholding records. I remember um, I edited an article that you did, a great article for The Intercept on your research for the book, where the CIA actually took back records that were in the public realm at universities. What happened with that in the end? Those records remain, remain secret. I can tell you, Sharon, a source approached me recently and gave me a bunch of those records that are still being withheld. Oh, well, and, and what were those records, just for our listeners? Those were the records of a man named Cleveland Cram, who was a senior CIA officer who did a study, a massive study of Angleton after his, his career was over. And the CIA itself, the CIA leadership, really had no idea what Angleton had been doing. And so they, they sent a senior trusted CIA officer in there and said, you know, study this guy and come back and tell us, you know, what did he do and, and did it serve the agency and did it, did it serve the agency's mission? And so the papers that I were looking for were the papers of that man, Cleveland Cram, and the CIA pulled them out of the public domain at the last minute before I could look at them. So now this source approached me and I got a small slice of what Cleveland Cram's study of Angleton was about. So I'm going to write that story uh, coming up. There's nothing in there about JFK, but there's a lot in there about Angleton and just how misguided his activities were. Uh, that's wonderful. Well, last question. You you talked a little bit earlier on what records have not yet been released. You mentioned Angleton's testimony. I think you said it was to the Senate, correct? Right. Is that the biggest thing you're looking for? What, as the releases continue to roll along, most interests you? There's a bunch of records about a, a, a group of CIA authors who, who we know from other information, from records already released, who were part of this surveillance or monitoring of Oswald. That is, before the assassination, while President Kennedy was alive, these were senior undercover officers who knew Oswald's biography, they knew his left-wing politics, they knew about his foreign contacts, and they knew about his personal life. So they had a very good granular knowledge of who he was. And there are, in the, in the, in the files to be released, are files of those officers. So I'm focusing on those. And there's about five of them 
one of them is Angleton, but there are others. And those records are the ones that I think are most likely to be revelatory. And they're the ones that the CIA is going to try hardest to hide because that is a vulnerability. CIA officers who knew about Oswald before the assassination, that is not something that the CIA leadership today wants to have a conversation about. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Um, For those of you who are interested in learning more about Angleton, you can pick up Jeff's book, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. Again, ER listeners, we love hearing from you. So if you have episode ideas, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Keith. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.